And welcome back to Malibu, California and Pepperdine's Graduate School of Public Policy. I'm Pete Peterson, the Braun Family Dean of this graduate program, and it's a delight to have you back for the fourth and final session of Office Hours with Victor Davis Hanson. If you've enjoyed this seminar series uh, or would like to support future public leaders that we're preparing here at the school, please consider supporting our work by clicking on the link below. So we're in finals week here at Pepperdine and the Graduate Policy School, and it's uh, just great to bring back our uh, Giles O'Malley Distinguished Visiting Professor, Dr. Victor Davis Hansen. Dr. Hansen, great to be back with you. Thank you. Uh, you've been teaching a class on roots of American leadership. Uh, you have explored American leadership through uh, the experiences and biographies of a number of military leaders. You've mentioned this before, but I think it's important, especially for those who may not have joined us in the past. Why is it important that future public leaders who may not be going into the military, you know, our students are going into a variety of different careers from the policy-related media into uh, federal government and federal agencies, state and local government. Why is it important for future public leaders to learn from these military leaders? Well, usually military leaders, and we're studying them always in a context of war, they're faced with bad and worse decisions. There are no good decisions because people are gonna die either way. And the question they usually have is how do we obtain strategic political goals at the least amount of blood and treasure? And so you can learn uh, how realistic they are. They're not utopian, they're not idealistic. In other words, they don't demand that they only get their way. What they is, that they look at the contemporary environment and they give a realistic appraisal what's possible and then they do a cost-benefit analysis of whether it'll work or not and they have to factor in so many f other issues. Mm. Moral, the moral edge, uh, the values and customs and agendas of its their own political uh, bosses, so to speak. But out of all of those contexts and criteria, I think you can say that uh, by studying how they react, a political leader can, can learn more than just studying um, similar careers of political leaders. And so many political leaders that we know, if you think about it, whether it's Dwight Eisenhower or Franklin Roosevelt or Winston Churchill, we know them precisely about how they functioned or performed during war mm. when there were no good choices. And you, you would think that great leaders sometimes uh, would do well in war, but as we know, in the case of the United States um, and Great Britain, I mean, Neville Chamberlain was considered a very good statesman in mm. peacetime, and mm. he, he didn't perform well under duress. And I think you could argue that Woodrow Wilson was an icon of the left, but I don't think he performed well in World War I when he decided not to pursue the German army that uh, did not surrender but asked for an armistice inside France and Belgium. Mm. And by not pursuing a total victory, I think he set the stage for World War II. So uh, how a political leader performs when there are no good alternatives is very important and they can find an alternative hmm. if they're if they think about it and they're trained to to think about it so in this fourth and final session of uh, this semester we're going to be in uh looking at a, a a general that maybe most americans aren't familiar with uh, who fought and led in a war that maybe most Americans may not be yeah. fully familiar with. Uh, we are going to be discussing General Matthew Ridgway and his leadership in the Korean conflict, the Korean yeah. War. Um, maybe as a, a place to start, we should give a little bit of background for those who may not be fully familiar with what was happening in 1950 and what led America into the Korean conflict. Talk a little bit about that. Well, remember that since 1911 or 12, Japan had occupied Korea. So when the Japanese empire imploded in August and September of 1945, a lot of the area they controlled 
came under the jurisdiction of the so-called allies. And unfortunately, that included the Soviet Union. Mm. Soviet Union had not wanted to help us one iota in the Pacific War. Mm. But unfortunately, under the Yalta Agreements and Potsdam that re reiterated it, we allowed them to come in and sort of clean up the spoils, so to speak, in Manchuria and Korea. So even though they said, we we can only handle the German army on the Eastern Front. We can't do a, a transatlantic uh, bombing campaign. We cannot do uh, major ship encounters. We can't supply anybody. We can't fight in Italy. We can't fight North Africa. We can't fight the Japanese. But we can destroy the German army on the Eastern Front. We mm. said, fine. When it was clear the German army was going to be destroyed, then they pledged they would re-pivot. And we thought that at the time, we were going to have to invade Japan. So unfortunately, we agreed to that. Mm. And after the dropping of the two atomic bombs, we found that the Soviets didn't want to budge. And there was two downsides. One was they were funding and supporting Mao Zedong's long, decades-long revolution. And because of their influence, he would win that civil war. In China. Give us right. what today we have communist China. The right. other was we made a deal that they would occupy the northern part of Japanese-held Korea, and we would occupy the southern part. And, we should, and the dividing line would be at the 38th parallel. At that time, most of the Japanese investment had been in the north, and they wanted that. It was closer. They had a, a small border with North Korea, mm -hmm. and they had a border with China. So in their way of thinking, we're going to control the northern and the more, when we got the more rural south, but we did get Seoul. And in that naive period of 46 and 47, we thought there could be a workable arrangement. And of course, Soviet propaganda immediately said, the United States is relying on Japanese right-wing fascist enforcers because as soon as the war ended, we had 12.3 million people in the military. We just collapsed. Mm. We went down to about a million. And we, we had the largest navy in the world and larger than all the navies combined, and we started mothballing. Just whole fleets of destroyers and cruisers and battleships. And the idea was we have nuclear weapons now, so we'll never fight a war again. Yeah, let's, let's just put a pin in that because I do think it's important to put ourselves back into that period following the it's conclusion of World War II yeah. with nuclear weapons, that there was this general feeling that these ground wars and these extended conflicts were now going to be obviated yes. by the bomb. Talk a little bit about how that changed well, the culture. Well, after World War II, the idea was there had been two threats in the world. Mm -hmm. And one was fascism, and we had destroyed it for good in Germany, Japan, and Italy. The other was communism. And while we hadn't destroyed it, we had flipped it. So the Soviet Union was on our side. Mm -hmm. And we even, you know, it was Uncle Joe for right. Stalin. Stalin. And we had, for four years, a monopoly on nuclear weapons. Mm. And so the idea was that we were going to be a partner with Stalin. And we had a left-wing administration, um, the Roosevelt administration this last year, and then the Democratic Truman administration. Truman got wise after about a year. But the idea was, at first, the United States would not need a conventional military, a very expensive one. We were spending almost 40% of GDP on the military. But we would go back to 1% or 2%, and then we would control the UN with our benevolent use of nuclear weapons. But after the spy ring and all of that happened in New Mexico and the Soviets exploded a bomb, then we found out that soon Britain would and then France and eventually India, China. So it, there were going to be a lot of nuclear powers. And we could see that very early once the Soviets were headed that way. But still there were people who said, you won't have conventional wars because obviously a uh, one party will escalate, mm. or even if it doesn't have a nuclear weapon, it will have a patron that does. And there were a few voices that said, idiot, don't you understand? Since you can never use them, <laughs> you'll have more conventional wars than you've ever, ever had. had. Yeah. And they're not going to be decisive because the moment you start to be decisive and threaten the existence of a power, it might, in desperation, take everybody down with it. Mm. 
And one of these people who warned that was Matthew Ridgway. Mm. And, and so when Korea broke out, the idea was uh, we have the bomb, but so does the Soviet Union. Mm. And China doesn't. But we had so many more bombs in the Soviet Union, we thought, well, we can threaten them. And we did threaten them. Uh, Eisenhower at times and MacArthur had actually. But those threats were not taken realistically. And so we had a proxy war. And the Soviets were backing the North Koreans, and right. we were backing uh, South so, Korea. And they used the Chinese as a proxy as well. So we're now into 1950. The North Koreans cross over. Uh, backed, as you say, by the Soviet Union, later, of course, by China, crossed the 38th parallel into the South, and describe those, that first six months of engagement well, before we, the we introduced to Matthew. was that on June 25th, in a surprise attack, suddenly this North Korean army that had been trained in China and had been supplied by the Soviet Union, and we should make a point here of noticing that during World War II, we didn't really know fully what was going on on the Eastern Front. We had heard rumors that uh, Russian tanks were better than German and much better than ours, and we had heard that some of their fighter aircraft, fixed wing, was as good or better than ours, and we had heard at the end of the war that they had uh, expropriated German jet technology more effectively than we had. And, you know, they had Kalishnikov 1947, AK 47, although they were not allowed to use very many in, or any in the Korean War, but we had heard all of this. And then when this army came across, trained by the Chinese that had been fighting for 20 years, both the Japanese but also the nationalists, and it was equipped with top flight Russian. T-34 tanks, 150-millimeter artillery, and MiG-15 jets, Plus, and we had disarmed. Unfortunately, Dean Acheson, our Secretary of State, when he gave a lecture about the American nuclear umbrella, that's the new term at the time, he inadvertently or inadvertently, he pointed to Japan and Australia, but he didn't point to Korea, and Stalin got, took that well, maybe they're not going to fight. And Mao came to him and said, we've trained these, the surrogates of the surrogates, said we've trained them. So they came in force about 150,000. And they pushed, the, they destroyed the South Korean uh, poorly organized, Sigmund Ray's army just collapsed. And we only had about five or 6,000 uh, constabulary force. And we went down all the way to the very southern tip at Pusan. Mm and we called it the Pusan Perimeter. And it shrunk to 50, 50 miles, and they captured most of the American command, and it looked like it was hopeless. Most people in the United States said, we shouldn't have been there in the first place. Soviets have overrun China. Chinese communists have overrun Korea. There is no South Korea left. And Harry Truman, to his credit, said, uh, that son of a blank, blank lied to me, Stalin, and kind of said, we have to, if we don't take a stand there, he will go into Europe. Mm -hmm. The mm -hmm. problem with that is that the Europeans did not want us to take a stand because they said, if you get tied down, we have 400 Soviet divisions and they've just eaten up all of Eastern Europe and they're going to come in. So we decided to, and Douglas MacArthur had been proconsul in Japan and had done a wonderful job. He had insisted on women's uh, voting rights, land redistribution. He was enormously popular. He, he was regal. He was in his 70s. He was looking, just looking toward retirement. He was a five-star general. It was 1950. He was just about ready you know, to hand back Japan. And this came. And so he got excited and said, we can still save Pusan. But they didn't have any wherewithal. So, I mean, they went to national uh, monuments and took Sherman tanks off. Or if they, they found an, a new Pershing tank, they grabbed it. And they, got, they brought lawyers out of um, retirement. Uh, the pilot on my father's B-29, who had flown 40 missions in uh, Japan, 
was in his 50s and he was a merchandiser, you know, a guy who collected uh, not junk, but, you know, haberdasheries. Yeah. And they called him out of retirement and he called my dad and said, do you want to go back? And he said, no, <laughs> I've got three kids and I'm yeah. farming, I'm teaching. And he said, well, I'm going to go back and pilot B-29s. And of course, they couldn't really use them because they had nothing, they had a nothing, the F-80 new first Panther jet and and other ones, the Banshee, they were not comparable yeah. to MiGs. Yeah, and so we didn't have air superiority. Um, we were threatened constantly with the intrusion of China. So it looked hopeless. We held the perimeter, and then MacArthur went to the Joint Chiefs, Omar Bradley and others, and said, "Let's have an amphibious landing behind uh, 38." and yeah. come in from the north and travel. And they thought, this guy is nuts. We don't have enough people. There's Inchon's a terrible place. And the tides get so low, you can walk out to the ships almost. They'll know we're coming. And by sheer force of character and reputation, we landed over 100,000 troops in September and held long enough. And then we started to reinforce Busan. And between the hammer and the anvil, we trapped and mostly destroyed the North Korean army, retook Seoul, chased them back to the original counter. MacArthur was a man of the year. Yeah. And then what do you do? When he said most famously, there's no substitute for victory. So he convinced everybody that we would take, without a lot of reinforcements, about 140,000 troops and head northward. But the problem was, as you look at the map, the Korean peninsula, the northern part starts to get wider right. and more mountainous. And the further you go from Seoul, the closer you get to the Yalu River and the Chinese border and the Soviet border. And it's November, and it's not Vietnam, it's cold. Yeah. And we didn't have winter clothing. So when we got up by November, we had almost won the war. We said, everybody will be home by Thanksgiving. And again, just to put a pin on this, yeah. victory at this point was completely taking the North Koreans and the communists and forcing them all the way out, yeah. so taking the entire peninsula. I think you could argue that the North Korean army by November, early November, was no longer combat effective. It had been destroyed by the Americans and the South Koreans. And we had the bomb, and we had told Stalin we would use it, and we, would, we said, MacArthur said he would, if the Chinese come in, we would bomb Manchuria, their staging areas. Right. And people started to worry because the Soviets, you know, in the bomb, and yeah. we, there was four million Chinese in uniform. And MacArthur said, they'll never come in because we do have air superiority. We didn't have air superiority. We had more planes by then, but we were not able to achieve, to destroy this. Soviet pilots were flying MiG-15. And so what happened, unfortunately, is sometime in late October, earlier November, I say sometimes because they started infiltrating. And by Thanksgiving, we had a half a million Chinese regulars and 150,000 hard-trained uh, North Koreans and they just swept through, right. and they were equipped for winter. And before we knew it, we had the longest retreat in military history in the United States. We retreated over 400 miles. So the Marines on the eastern side went to Chosan Reservoir and were, and were lifted out. And then we lost a couple of divisions. And uh, about 15,000 men were killed in the retreat. Mm. And suddenly this thing that was supposed to be over with, and MacArthur was a genius. Right, home by Christmas. And he had said they never will invade. Right. They did. And, and then in late December, the commander of the Korean forces, a World War II hero, Walton Walker, got killed in a jeep accident. MacArthur's in his 70s. He's the supreme commander of the air at Pacific Theater. But he's not capable. He'd only stayed one night in Korea. Yeah, he was based in Japan almost the entire... Yeah, he stayed, and he was not not physically able to go there. And Walker was dead, and people wanted to get out. And they looked around, and 
who wants to who wants this job? Nobody wanted it. Right. And here's Matthew Ridgeway, and he's fifty five years old. He's been married three times. He's had a heart attack in World War II. He missed out on World War I because he was a Spanish speaker and they put him down at the border. In World War II, they put him in charge of this new 82nd Airborne. He'd never parachuted out of the plane, so he, he had learned to parachute in his 50s. And then lo and behold, he was at D-Day, he was at the Battle of the Bulge, and he, had a, he was during the Sicily invasion earlier, and he had a wonderful World War II, and everybody thought Matt Ridgway is solid. He's always, if you got a bad job, he'll do it. <laughs> if you're going to do something stupid like parachute into Rome behind German lines, he will be the only guy who will say, this is stupid, don't do it. He's fearless, but uh, he's stubborn, he's blunt, and people didn't want to deal with him. Yeah. But for this job, they called him, and so he, he had no warning, never been to Asia. He didn't know a word of Korea. He didn't know anything about it. Right. He was, you know, he was he had been uh, supreme NATO. He would be supreme, but he was high up in the NATO command. He was uh, assistant. He was going to be assistant. He was slated to be assistant secretary of the army. He had a pretty good civilian post-war career. Yeah. A life of ease in his fifties. Probably would have retired in five years, and they put him right out in the front line. Let's get into um, his leadership style because, I, again, I think what's important about why you chose Ridgeway, and I'm going to be drawing several quotations here out of your book, yeah. The Savior Generals, yeah. which is one of the books that you used in the class yeah. uh, this semester, is to understand not only the importance of what they did militarily, but also the leadership skills, things that could be applied for leaders of any sector. Um, and so there's a, a chapter which, which speaks to the amazing history of Ridgeway in Korea. It's the title of the chapter is 100 Days in Korea. So, so much of what happened happened in a very small amount of time. Three months. And at the same time, some of the skills that he displayed are things that we've touched on on other sessions as well. So I wanted to draw here actually from the, the epilogue in which you describe some of the things that are held in common by the Savior Generals and then uh, get, your, get your reflections here. Quote, the Savior Generals display commonalities of character and disposition that encourage contrarianism of all sorts, professional, political, and social. When Ridgway arrived in Korea, he quickly discovered against the consensus that an invincible Chinese enemy had crushed, outnumbered, and outgunned Americans led by the brilliant Douglas MacArthur, that the American army was not so much beaten militarily by Chinese and Korean forces as it was poorly equipped for winter weather, panicked, terribly led in the field and without confidence in the nature of its mission. Yeah. So again, in drawing out the, the, the leadership skill element of this, that force of will and personality that we touched on both with, certainly with Themistocles, but particularly with Patton and Sherman, that ability to communicate to those that they are leading that there is the opportunity, not only the opportunity, but even the promise of victory. Talk a little bit about how Ridgeway did that in this context in Korea. Yeah. Well, he had shown in Europe during the Battle of the Bulge when most people were panicked, he did not panic. He did not panic at Sicily when the entire division was, the airdrops were 40% gone, casualties. So why didn't he panic is your question. And the answer is that he had enormous confidence in his training, his intelligence. And as a contrarian, he, he had a suspicion of human nature. So that most people come to a consensus. Ridgway is saying most people come to a consensus because they want to be liked or they want to be, uh, share uniform opinions, but they're usually, not, usually wrong. 
So that what was the consensus? The consensus was we shouldn't have been there in the first place. We've had a terrible blow. Truman is soft on communism. MacArthur, if you're on the right, Sherman, uh, Truman had sold out to communism. If, if you are on the left, MacArthur was a crazy guy who would get us in a war. The country was divided. McCarthyism was starting over this issue. Right. MacArthur had met Truman in the Pacific and had assured him that the Chinese wouldn't invade. He had told everybody they would never invade. So this icon was completely discredited, old, bitter, angry, and telling reporters that Truman was incompetent, if not naive, if not sympathetic to the enemy. And it was just, it was a terrible time. So Ridgeway comes in and they said, everybody comes to him, the captains, the lieutenant colonel, may everybody, and says, we've never fought anybody like this. They fight at night. They have bugles. They make sounds. They play music. And when they capture you, they brainwash. This was the Manchurian candidate period. Right. And they indoctrinate you. And they, and they, they did. Yeah. And when we capture the prisoners, sometimes they'll allow people to be captured. So when we bring them back to South Korea, they foment revolution within an insurrection. They deliberately they do things that we've never seen before. And Ridgway's, after about a week, he surveyed the entire situation. He didn't say much. And he said, you're all in a collective hysteria. There are certain fundamentals that never change in history. Mm. We got in trouble because we went too far, too fast, with too few troops from our supply lines at the wrong time of the year. They are doing the same thing we did. They're getting further and further from China. It's getting colder. It's not November, December. It's January, February. They are as ill-equipped as we were. And we are going to learn from our mistakes, and they won't. Mm -hmm. So we're all going to get as much winter gear as we can. You're all going to get warm food. You're all going to get weekly mail deliveries. All the people who have been in combat got to get out. You're worn out, you're de demoralized, and I'm going to rotate battle commanders every two or three weeks. And most importantly, people that have command responsibilities are not going to be in the rear. They're going to be sleeping out on the ground with the troops at the front. And I'm going to set an example. So he wore a grenade on one side, and he didn't wear two, as everybody said, but he had a medical kit on the other. They called him Old Iron Tits. <laughs> and he wore a book jacket, and he slept on the ground. He was almost killed a couple of times. He's a big guy. And am amazingly, when he would see soldiers, they'd start griping, and he'd say, don't gripe, I, I'm more critical of us than you are, and this is what I'm going to do, blang, blang. He made a little booklet and said, these guys don't even know why they're here. Here is why you're here in Korea. You're here to stop communism in Asia and save Japan and save the American effort in World War II. You're here to save Europe from Soviet communism. You're here to make sure the United States way of life is not endangered. And he had it all written out mm -hmm. and, he, and everybody knew it. And so it was very radical. It was in a month, suddenly, Everybody got excited, and then he started to say things like, we have an F-86, it's now coming in. It is, a, it is just as good as a MiG-15, but more importantly, our pilots are better. They will restore air, not superiority, air supremacy. Right. And when they do that, B-29s with napalm, 20,000 tons, will be able to fly during the daytime and we are going to wipe out their supply lines as these half a million people are down here fighting us. And we are going to, just, he said, hang on everybody. We're gonna lose Seoul again, just like we took it back. I mean, it, was, it changed hands four, four times. times. Right. So it was South Korean, they took it at, during the Pusan campaign, we lost it. MacArthur took it back and now they crossed the 38th parallel again, chased us all the way 400 miles, and Ridgeway said, but this time, 
we're going to have a series of lines, dug in Verdun-like lines with enormous uh, heavy, heavy artillery and air support. So what we want them to do is come and then we're going to shellac them yeah. and wipe out the first three or four waves and then we're going to retreat. Yeah. And then we're going to wipe them out and then we're going to retreat. And then they're going to go into Seoul and disperse and get trapped in there. And then we're going to come around the, the horns yeah. and we're going to cut off all our supplies. And then they're going to retreat and we're going to do the same thing in reverse. We're going to be on the offensive, yeah. but we're not going to go uh, in a crazed fashion home and go back north. Yeah. And we're going to destroy uh, them as an effective combat force and with the artillery and armor and air superiority and superior soldiers in command. He did that by March, he took back Seoul. Yeah. And by April, he was back, May, he was back at the 38th parallel. So I want to get to this point as well because first, uh, and this is a theme that we've discussed in some of the other sessions, that ability of foresight that all the generals that we've profiled have displayed, but it's foresight based on facts on the ground. And your outline there of Ridgeway understanding, hey, the reason that we got overextended and had to have this massive retreat out of the north was we got overextended in our supply lines in unfriendly territory in a bad time of year. If This frankly could have been predicted, yes. right? But now we're seeing the same thing on the side of the, the Chinese. They have now come back. They've now left their base of operations and there, we see the same opportunity to do to them essentially what's happened yes. to us. And we did. But at the same time, it could have been, given the success that Ridgeway begins to experience, that maybe if this had been MacArthur, it is, okay, now we're gonna go way back all the way up to the north. So I just, I just yeah. wanted to draw out here another trait that you see in Savior Generals and then again, look at the experience of Ridgeway and what I can only describe as prudence, if not wisdom. Quote, most generals assume that every victory is naturally to be followed by an even greater one. But savior generals are philosophers of sorts who worry about the idea of yin and yang, nemesis and karma. And so do not think that a marathon, Dara, Gettysburg, Inchon, or crushing of Saddam Hussein is necessarily the final chapter. They instead realize that previously an accustomed victory often leads to arrogance and in turn complacency or even a sort of paralysis ending in catastrophe. Overconfidence blinds the winning side to the need for constant reassessment and readjustment to meet ever-changing conditions on the battlefield. So, MacArthur's still there in January and February and March, and he's not doing, I mean, he's not in command. He only stayed one night in Korea. So he's got this subordinate three-star general, and he's now captured the imagination of America. They can't believe that the war that was lost, and then the war that was won, and then the war that was lost is now the war that's won. And so MacArthur is telling all of the reporters that basically he did this and he's prepared to go north again. But this time he's going to play for keeps. They're going to drop maybe depleted uranium from fissionable materials along the border. He's willing to do anything. And Ridgeway's in an impossible spot because he's praising Ridgeway, but privately he's making fun of the fact that when Ridgeway's getting close to 38th, he's not preparing to go all north. Way. And Truman is watching all of this, and so are the Joint Chiefs, and they're thinking, MacArthur's too old, and he's too dangerous, and he's. And this is where we got the Uniform Code of Military Justice came out of this. Mm. That's Article 88 says that no general, active or retired, can disparage the Commander-in-Chief. And that's what MacArthur's doing. And so they, because of Ridgeway, they feel that they're in a unique position that they can remove this icon 
and then bring this guy in, who is a hero, save South Korea, but not get in a war with China or Russia. So when they ask him, now we're on to um, the Yalu River again. And by the way, the Joint Chiefs who, and I don't think it speaks very well of them, they were against, uh, when we were losing, they said you can't go north. When we're winning, they say you gotta go north. Right. And now they're leaving it up to Ridgeway and everybody's pushing him. And MacArthur says there's no substitute for victory. You have to extinguish the enemy. And he's looking at the situation and he's saying, well, the reason that we got in trouble was we're all the way over here in Asia. The country's sick of war. We're in a nuclear environment with a nuclear power. We've got China with a capability, you know, 600, 700,000, 700 million people. We've got Stalin who's all the way to the German border and we're going to be fighting in their backyard with an American public that doesn't want to fight, mm. doesn't even know where we are, and how am I going to get more troops and mobilize and then go northward and avoid the mistakes that MacArthur made before when he's my commanding officer. So, I mean, Ridgway was in this impossible situation where he's saying to MacArthur, well, let me study this situation, but what he wants to say is, even if I went there, I would have to daily do exactly the opposite of what you did. I'd have to get a lot more troops. Right. I'd have to not go in, in harsh weather. I'd have to be very careful. And I couldn't boast about we're going to be home for the, at this date. And you would take that as an insult. So he was in an impossible situation. So at about 20 miles north of the um, so-called DMZ 38th parallel, he stopped. And that's where the war stayed. And MacArthur then is removed uh, from theater command in April, I think. And then Ridgeway then inherits that job and goes to Japan. And then they bring in Van Fleet to take his job. Right. But the war is now over its active phase. So now the Soviets are sending as much equipment, the Chinese are sending people, and both sides are building up these huge lines along the 38th parallel. And, for the, and then from June of 1951 to 52 to 53, that is for two years, they're each going to be crossing the 38th in offensives, kind of like World War I trench warfare, and it's static. Mm -hmm. We're going to lose another 15,000, and it's going to be, at the time, uh, it's very controversial because people are saying, we didn't win, it's the first time America has lost a war, and other people said, no, this is the first war of the nuclear age, and we saved uh, South Korea. And the irony is that after Vietnam, after Iraq, after Afghanistan, now people look back at Korea and they say, Kia, Hyundai, Samsung, yeah. we saved it. It's a democracy. It's a great country. The Korean War worked. Yeah. And it's still controversial. So I wanted to conclude with this third leadership skill that you cite in Savior Generals. And again, it's from the epilogue, and, but we'll, we'll refer back to um, General Ridgway and how he exemplified it. But we've again seen it in Patton and Sherman and Themistocles is their ability to tie their initial military role to some larger cultural factors. Yeah. To understand that this isn't just about winning particular battles. This is part of a much larger mission. So just to uh, site here. First, to start with the uh, connection to Ridgeway. Ridgeway pushed the communists out of South Korea. In the process, he taught the West that it could fight and win a distant, limited, conventional war in the age of nuclear annihilation. These generals saw their tasks as transcending the immediate war. They were not just to beat the enemy on a particular day or even a uh, given campaign, but also to craft a means that would defeat the enemy to the point 
of winning the war and thereby to provide a blueprint for others to do so as well. So this consideration of leadership, that it's not just about this particular task, it's about reframing the conventional wisdom, yeah. as you've seen yeah. and described. Ridgeway obviously did that, took a defeated army in, in what was understood to be an impossible so-called situation, and in the matter of months completely changed it, but also did it with an eye towards setting a template that could mm. be followed by others. He did, and it's very controversial because he's a very controversial figure to this day because people argue what the ultimate lesson he was trying to convey was. Ostensibly, he was saying, when we are in unenviable positions that we didn't want to be in, but we had no choice, and we're in the age of nuclear weapons and global communism, there are fundamentals that we can return to that will uh, achieve our tactical and strategic theater objectives without endangering larger issues of politics, economics, but survival. Mm. Okay, that's what most people say. But when he came out of that, he never wanted to get in it again. So his nuance point was Look, we never went into South Korea. We were stuck there because of World War II, and we got surprised. We do not want to go all over South Korea's. And that came up almost immediately in the 50s because the French were losing in Vietnam. Vietnam. And Eisenhower said, you know, he had campaigned on, I'm going to go to Korea. And when he got elected, everybody thought, the beginning of 1953, Ike was going to go north. Yeah. That's what he basically had implied. He's going to use nuclear weapons, and all of a sudden he looked at this thing, and Ridgeway, he's going to, he didn't like Matthew Ridgeway. Yeah. He didn't give him enough credit. I don't think he even mentioned his role in his memoirs or in articles he wrote, but he, he adopted the Ridgeway. He didn't go north. And then... The French came to him and said, if you supply us at Den Vinh Phu and are willing to use nuclear weapons, you can stop the Chinese fed uh, Viet Cong and North Vietnamese. And Eisenhower was willing to do it. Mm. And then he, you know, he thought, well, I better talk to Ridgeway, who was now an iconic figure, and he was going to be chief of the staff of the army and NATO commander. and." He had done such wonders in Korea. And nobody thought he would give the advice he did. He said, don't do it. Mm. Do not get involved in Vietnam. If you get involved in Vietnam, it's going to be just like the Korean War with Russia and China. It's a long place. It's way over there. And the terrain and the climate is different in Korea. You cannot fight a conventional war. It'll be street to street. It's much more populated. It's not like North Korea. Right. And he was right, and so we didn't. And then when for 10 years, we kept out. He's, he still prays for giving us 10 years. And then when LBJ came in, and Kennedy was assassinated in 63, LBJ thought it would be kind of like a Korean police action. And at 64, he was ready to send the 500,000, which would become 500,000. And he called Ridgeway in. He said, do not do it. Please don't do it. He said, I, you don't, everybody praises me for saving Korea. You don't know what I had to go through. You're going to get attacked by the left, you're gonna, and you can't win in a conventional sense by going all the way into China and destroying North, communist North Vietnam, and the right. right will not be happy unless it's a MacArthur, no substitute for victory. And you've got a public that'll say, why are we in Vietnam? And the Europeans will say, you're draining our support. It's just a mess, don't do it. And he did it. Mm. And so here now Ridgeway is in his 70s. Yeah. He's just watching this and he's, he's saying, 
you know. And then when it's time to bug out, that was the word came out of Korea, the bug out. Right. They call him back in. Which Ridgeway said he didn't want to have used. Yes. You know, that he didn't just want to, to use show the power of language. No bug right. out. Right. And now Johnson's not going to run for president. He's part of the wise men, this yeah. group of Advisors. Walt Lustow and the, yeah. the Bundy brothers and George Kennan. And he said, everything is connected. There's intersectionality. And if you bug out, and he's very influential uh, with Richard Nixon's Vietnamization. Right. So if you argue that Richard Nixon, by night, until Watergate, had pretty much got us out of Vietnam, we had a viable Henry Kissinger-Nixon, viable South Vietnam, that was kind of the advice of Matthew Ridgway. Ridgway. And yet we kind of... Because of Watergate, and we cut off aid to the South Vietnamese, and they didn't win a guerrilla. They came right down Highway won the conventional war, and took back the country. But his his advice to Johnson and later to Nixon was the basically the only thing worse than getting yourself in an unenviable position is losing it. So it's not what I would have wanted to be in. It wasn't in Korea. And this time we sort of forced the issue because we didn't inherit Vietnam. The French, we didn't have to inherit from the French. We had to in World War II. But my God, if we pull out and allow them to take it, it's going to do a lot of damage to the United States. He was absolutely right. Well, and I guess that will be where we wrap up this session as someone like Ridgeway transitions from leader to advisor to leaders, yes. that you had one in Eisenhower who was in the end willing to listen to Ridgeway on Vietnam, but that then advice fell on deaf ears when it came to LBJ. Yes. And so the importance of listening to experts, even in the, you know, the turbulence of what's going on around you politically uh, really does take courage and prudence. It does. He had what Themistocles also called pronoia. He could think of things that would likely happen way ahead of the game. But he based also, on current events, yes. right? He was able to, to take these things. He did, and, and he, right. he was very effective because he was not traditionally ambitious. So when we say we, you, you say we don't know him, Right. It's because he was not angling all the time to be chairman of the Joint Chiefs. Right. By any fair reckoning, by 1955, he should have been chair of the Joint Chiefs. And by 1960, uh, 61, he should have been Secretary of Defense. And in the early 60s, he should have been uh, an ambassador to Vietnam or something. Yeah. And he never was because... Yeah. What, what he was is, when everything, everybody was arguing with each other, and they couldn't get along, and nobody had an answer, it was always, we'll bring back cranky old Ridgeway <laughs> and see what the guy has to say. Yeah. So when Reagan got in trouble, he said, Rittenberg um, Cemetery, he, he wanted to make a gesture to Germany that all the hostility of World War II was over, and now we were going to encourage Germany to arm, but so he was going to go to a German cemetery, and unfortunately they hadn't done the proper reconnaissance, and there were Waffen-SS troops buried there. Mm -hmm. So here Reagan is going to be uh, with the Germans and put a wreath on graves that were yeah. killers. I mean, they yeah. weren't Totenkopf-SS. And there was a German Luftwaffe officer who had been horribly mangled, burned, and he was deliberately picked him. And they needed, and nobody wanted to go there. Like, are you crazy? The media's say, and then, you know, Reagan says, well, there's always Matt Ridgway. He's in his 80s. Yeah. And they call him up, and it's sort of reporting for duty, sir. Yeah. And he goes over there, and He's in his late eighties, and he, he conducts himself with professionalism. He saves the day. He's not afraid when people, you know, say, "Well, how could you?" And he said, "Look, these are our allies now. These people need to be 
they don't need to be reminded of what their fathers did. They need to be reminded of what we're going to do with them as partners. And mm. he conducted, he really saved the day. And he was sort of that way. Multiple occasions. Yeah, he had a very tragic life. His third wife, and he finally had a, a child, very uh, athletic, handsome, brilliant kid. And he was with some Boy Scouts, and he was walking along a railroad with kayaks. Yeah. Scout leader, and he was young, and a train came by and hit the, the kayak, and it flipped around and hit his head and killed him. Mm. And so he lost his only son to a freak accident when he was, I think, uh, very young, I think late teens or early 20s. And uh, his marriages had not gone. He'd finally married a woman he was married to for over 40 years. Yeah. And he, had, he lived to be 98 years old. Yeah. So Colin Powell famously at his funeral said, no man has done more for America. America knows, owes more to this man than any other man. What he was basically saying, we would have lost the Korean War. And he's a hero in South Korea today. Mm. He saved the country. Yeah. And without him, um, like I said, I, we drove over here in your Kia. <laughs> Without yeah, Ridmouth right. Ridgeway, you yeah, would not right. have been driving in your Kia. That's right. That's right. Uh, we would have Kim Jong Un threatening us not with fifteen nuclear weapons, but probably at two or three hundred. Right. Because he would have had the whole, whole peninsula. peninsula. Right. And there'd not been two million people dead in, from the Korean War. He probably would have killed four or five more, or starved them to death. And we would have had a terrible problem. We have a terrible problem with him now, but not anything like would have happened if it wasn't for Ridgeway. Well, we'll conclude on that note, yeah. um, Dr. Hansen. It has been so great to have you here you. on campus. I'm sure as our viewers uh, are probably thinking, they're so jealous of your graduate students that you've well, I taught hope so. here. <laughs> I don't know, you never know. <laughs> oh, I know they have been, uh, but it's great to have had you here on campus and look forward to continuing our Well, I'm looking at the Pacific Ocean out the window behind you and we're in midwinter and it's about 68 degrees so <laughs> I'm in a very enviable position. Well it's wonderful to have you here. Thank you.